if there's one thing we need to be able to make our, our decisions appropriately and adaptively, it is to be small enough and nimble enough to be able to make those adjustments in real time. And that, that's why it's so exciting to be at this at this scale at this time in history. People like Ben and I have been sounding the alarm of the fragility in a global industrial scale antibiotic uh, petroleum dependent food system. We've been sounding the alarm for a long time and saying, actually, all this efficiency, it actually has a fragile side to it. Well, COVID suddenly, it didn't make it fragile. It exposed the fragility. Our prices for authentic, you know, high quality have stayed the same while the industry, the store food has has doubled. And people like us that are in the resiliency space, less fragile, we're seeing the price equilibrium come into play in a new context as COVID has exposed and demonstrated the fragility of the system. I have never been more optimistic and excited about our resilient alternative than I am today. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, this is a podcaster's dream team in a, in a way. I'm really, really happy today to have two guests that we're going to have a conversation. So it's Joel Salatin. Really happy to have Joel here again on Farm to Table Talk. And Joel, you've been several times in the past, and you always ended up being like the one that got listened to the most. And Joel, you know what? I've done several podcasts with you over the last few years, not as many as I'd like, actually. And they get listened to yet. I mean, people find that your message is not mm. just timely for them, but people are going in and finding my podcast with you from four years ago wow. and listening to it today, which is one of the things I like about podcasts is that when you get a good guest and something worth hearing, it's evergreen. And Joe, what better thing to say about you is it's just another way to be evergreen because that's kind of how you make a living. Well, yeah, it is, Roger. And uh, it's always a pleasure to be on with you. And uh, and thank you, for, thank you for providing this platform for the issues that I know we'll discuss. Well, and Ben Glasson and Ben, I kind of have you in mind when I have conversations, certainly with Joel, because I remember the first time I think you reached out to me and said you listened to the podcast and you had some some ideas and I followed up with you. And, you know, again, you're one of those folks that you don't just hear ideas and say, well, that's interesting, but you, you're doing it. I mean, you're constantly not just listening to my podcast, I know, or not just reading Joel Salatin, but you're always looking at ideas and and I think that maybe you should introduce yourself a little bit more uh, because there's more people that have read Joel than have read Ben yet, but maybe someday your book's coming. But why don't you ex explain uh, what you're doing uh, and then perhaps why some of what Joel talks about has been relevant to your own operation? 
Sure, Roger. Thank you for having me on again. Uh, I think this is my third appearance on Farm to Table Talk, your podcast, uh, not including any clubhouse chats that we've had that have also been published. Um, but our last podcast together was titled Taking the First Step. And we talked about getting involved and and starting no matter where you can, no matter how you can. Uh, and so uh, this, along with many other lessons I've learned from Joel and the other people in this regenerative movement. Uh, so I, I need to recognize that I am suited up here today because when meeting, uh, meeting the leader, leading evangelist for this global movement that we take part in, well, I need to wear a suit to represent myself like the businessmen, like the academics, like the philosophers and the entrepreneurs that we are. So you know, suit up as as the intellectual agrarian Terence Lehu would say. So here we are. Um, so what I do is I am a regenerative land uh, manager, uh, and and I use livestock as my working crew. Uh, so you know, I always take this back to one of my favorite Joel Salatin clips, which is this YouTube video that the Center for Food Safety posted six or seven years ago and it's one minute and 40 seconds long and it's titled on creating young farmers uh so this is one of my favorites joel and and basically from this i've gleaned these four principles that i farm with today and there's the four principles that i started with when i took the first step so the first principle is detaching the land ownership from the farming so lease land is absolutely abundant and the value of farmland does not match its productive value to the farmer. So real estate, especially where I'm at on the Pacific coast is out of this world. So detached land ownership from the farming partnering to get hold of land. So I did this first when I was still living in the city of Vancouver, while well, I was working in Vancouver and lived in a suburb. And so I was taking the SkyTrain into town every day, which gave me the opportunity to read more books than I ever had in that year. And so that's when I started picking up Salatin books off of the library shelf. And so I started, uh, you know, I've heard Joel and your son, Daniel, say a couple times, you know, maybe the way for you to start is with a basil plant on your table. Maybe the way for you to start is something like quail. Joel, I'm your quail guy. Mm. So I wanted to raise pasture poultry, but we were not allowed to have backyard chickens in this community that I was living in. So I looked for that gray area. So we were allowed animals that are generally considered pets must live within a domicile. So I built my mini chicken tractor, a quail tractor, this little mobile shelter um, that I could raise quail in. I asked my landlord, uh, can I raise quail in our backyard? He's like, oh, well, I don't know if it would attract wildlife or I didn't want the neighbors to think it was weird. Ding, neighbors. So I, I made up a brochure and we actually lived with a terraced backyard up on a ridge, but I walked down to the flat backyards and I went door to door and I said, hey, can I raise quail in your backyard? And if not your backyard, can I raise them in your neighbor's backyard? Would you mind? Most people were like, eh, maybe my, not my yard, but I wouldn't mind if it was in my neighbor's. And then I found my first customer, my first lease owner who was willing to partner with me in exchange for me fertilizing their yard and sharing some of the eggs with them. So the first principle is detaching the land ownership from the farming. The second principle is mobile infrastructure. 
both in the sense that we move our animals across the ground, participating with nature the same way migrating wildlife would, um, but also mobile that we're nimble to move onto farms and off of farms, being able to use this lease land being very nimble. So instead of chattel, or we use chattels would be the latest real estate term, not fixtures, nothing's fixed to the property. Everything can be taken with us. So I made these uh, quail tractors that were three foot by seven foot so I could fit it in the back of my wife's electric car. Unfortunately, I measured the top of the hatchback, not the bottom. So I ended up not fitting in the car and I had to walk them down the road, uh, rumbling along with these little lawnmower wheels on them to take them to the backyards. The third principle is modular infrastructure. So being able to scale up and scale down quickly and easily. So I started with one backyard and by the end of the summer, I had five backyards. And so I would uh, put my suit on, I would head out the door and I would stop at these little backyards on my way to the sky train and I'd pull the chicken tractors along. I had about a dozen quail per uh, quail tractor in and I would collect the eggs on my way home from work. Um, the final piece is direct marketing. So the farmer needs to hold on to as much of the food dollar as possible. Uh, and especially when we're doing something obscure or different like regenerative agriculture, we need to educate our customers on this. So uh, there was a car-free day. Uh, and so this was kind of my like entry into a one-day annual farmer's market. And I didn't have my health authority permits, whatever, to sell food. So I sold a card that was a membership to the Quail Club for $10. Well, I picked up 10 customers. I had live birds there so the children could pet the birds and I had posters describing, I think Joel's face was even on some of those posters, uh, describing what regenerative agriculture is. And then I picked up 10 customers and those 10 customers were able to purchase all of the eggs that I could produce moving forward that year. Uh, then the meat birds, I didn't have inspected processing. So I was able to gift the meat birds. So I learned how to process my quail and I gifted those to the families who I was uh, using their backyard. So every family member got at least one dinner bird on their plate during the project. And so this is how I demonstrated the four principles that I now use today. First, detach the land ownership from the farming. Second of all, mobile infrastructure to be nimble and to mimic migration. Third is modular infrastructure. And fourth is direct marketing. So today, um, in that was 2018 in the city. In 2019, I moved back to uh, the island to be closer to my family, so a smaller community uh, where I have access to farmland. So we bought the smallest, tiniest little house in town by the hospital. And now I can drive five minutes across the highway to be in the rural farmland where I have access first to five acre field, and now uh, my larger home base is a 50-acre farm, uh, community farm with lots of nonprofits working in the same space. And then I have access to other five-acre fields here and there, as well as looking at a 100-acre field uh, to raise cattle on. So I started in 2019 with broiler chickens, with doing batches of 250, because my spreadsheets showed that in order for me to make it worthwhile for my time and my labor and my money, had to start with 250 broilers per batch. Um, then I got into turkeys and then pigs and then sheep. And now this summer I've gotten into beef. Uh, Boy, I tell you what. Hey, Joel, wow. we're, we're going to get back wow. to what he's looking at going ahead. But I want you to respond now because uh, I'm just sitting there. How, how I'd feel if I were you and I heard somebody saying that they remembered what and paid attention to something I said some years back and how they're trying to follow that advice. Um, 
I'll bet that's not the first time you've heard people say that they paid attention to what you were doing and practicing. And I'm, I just wondered if you would kind of react to Ben's reaction to you. Oh, yeah. I, I just want to uh, reach out and give him a great big hug. I mean, digital uh, hug, Joel. Uh, digital hug. Yeah. 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 I mean, here, here's, a, here's a guy. Here's a guy that actually um, um, had enough humility, enough humility to say, if I want to go someplace, I'm going to listen to the guy who went to the place where I want to go and shorten my, shorten my learning curve. And, um, and, and I, you know, Ben, you're, 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 you're one in a thousand. I mean, I, you know, uh, most people have so much hubris. They, they want to start either too big. Uh, they want to put all their capital into buying a piece of land. Uh, they, they invest in way too much infrastructure. Um, they lose a lot of money on hobbies. You know, I want to have a horse. I want to have, you know, or, or, or too much, um, brand paint on a certain kind of tractor sort of thing. I noticed you didn't even mention that what kind of, you don't even have a tractor. You don't, you, 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 you've been, um, you know, one of my favorite things now is, You'll like this, you know, all self-respecting farmers have a, have like a, you know, a John Deere Gator side by side, you know, that's, that's like the mark of the mark of a self-respecting farmer. And um, so uh, I don't have one. So last year um, I finally broke down and got a 1987 uh, Ford Bronco uh, five speed high and low 18, I mean, these, these uh, John Deere Gators, you know, they're like $22,000. And, um, and my little Ford Bronco, uh, $1,800, millions of them were made, parts are cheap. It's got a roof over it so I can go in the rain. It's got a windshield. I knocked all the back windows out. And so it's like a pickup truck in the back. And, um, and, and that thing will climb a tree. It's cheap. It's functional. And, um, and, 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 you know, and I'm not, I'm not a self-respecting farmer, so I don't have all that, you know, need to, to be surrounded by all that. And, and you've just demonstrated the, the can do, uh, can do practical, functional, it's function over form, function over form, function over form, uh, uh, make it work first. And you, you, you can put paint on it. You can make it pretty. You can do all sorts of things later, but first you have to, you have to get the embryonic prototype. And so you have just gone at this systematically and strategically. Um, I couldn't. I couldn't be more proud and and honored to um, to hear the story. It's it's just uh, you're not the only one that's done it. But uh, but I'll tell you, you know, it's um, it, it's 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 pretty far and away. You know, the there are very few that that can just take this, understand, pierce through what it is, and then apply it practically uh to their to their place so uh as they say in australia good on you thanks joel and you know one thing about it is i'm trying to grow without debt you know i may be cheating a little bit with a credit card here and there to cover feed bills and that but uh um and then also it's been a challenge for me because i got laid off from my off-farm job expecting to work until about 2025 while building the farm as a side hustle and so now I kind of was forced to farm full time and then do side hustles. Uh, but my but, you know, I heard you recently and in, in something I was listening to say that that the using the word metabolize. So by growing 
and scaling slowly. It's kind of like the lean manufacturing process. You know, Ben yes. Hartman has the book, The Lean Farm Startup, where you can learn all about it. And, and, and starting with a minimum viable product. So starting with a prototype being my quail project and then moving to something like a couple batches of broilers and then scaling to de- different enterprises. But this allows me, um, I like the word metabolize, growing with my customers. So growing with the skills and the customers and the resources that I have in, in front of me, especially because I'm doing this basically alone at this point. Um, I really like that word metabolize. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that's that's what keeps you within the within the bounds of what you can handle. And 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 um, I love that growing with your customers. You know, in marketing, in marketing, um, it's a lot easier to find a hundred people who will spend a thousand dollars with you than a thousand people who will spend a hundred dollars with you. So once you once you have a a customer base that you start with your quail eggs and then your quail. Those people, I'm sure, Ben, I, I could ask ask you, um, those people are asking you, this is so great. Well, what else do you have? You know, can I get something else from you? And 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 that that then drives the next enterprise, the next, the next thing that you do, whether it's something that you grow or whether you look around in a community and say, Hey, you know, can I can I can I middleman, you know, for for somebody else that's producing a non-competitive complementary product that I can add to my portfolio because the person that makes the sale owns the customer. I'm sitting here being ashamed of the fact that I haven't gone out and tried to start farming again, because uh, <laughs> you, you motivate me. Uh, I want to leave out the fact that I don't work that hard anymore, but I, I, I could, maybe I could start working that hard again. I'm curious, uh, Joel, just before we broaden this out a little bit more, you get a chance to talk to people literally all over the world. Some of them are reading your books all over the world. You end up being asked to go to different continents and talk. And, and even this morning, I mean, I'm sitting here in California and Ben is in British Columbia and you're in Virginia. Do you find that, that these principles are pretty universal that it fits almost anywhere that you go, or do you find some places are more receptive than others? Uh, no, the, these principles are absolutely universal. And, and in fact, that's one of my, I have kind of 10 benchmarks of truth. It's one of my favorite uh, uh, talks that I do, uh, 10 benchmarks of truth. And one of them is that truth is universally applicable. Uh, if, if, if a principle will only work, for example, in a developing country uh, or a, a um, you know, and I, I don't want to mean anything here condescendingly. I'm just using phrases so we know what I'm talking about. First world versus third world. Okay, uh, there's no condescension here, uh, but but we understand what I'm talking about. If if a principle only works in a in a third world country or it only works in a first world country, that is not actually truth. Truth works, and one of the one of the greatest joys of my life has been having visitors from. Kenya and Namibia and Zimbabwe and uh, and and when when Kosovo after the war there and you know when Yugoslavia uh, broke up I had a I had a bunch of mayors from um, um, you know the former was from Slovakia and they came and and these folks from all over the world in in much different situations that we're in here um, 
said, this is exactly what we need. This is exactly what we don't need. Tyson chicken houses. We don't need USA to come in and, and, and buy John Deere tractors for us. This is exactly what we need. I mean, I had a friend in China, uh, People's Republic of China, uh, who started a, a, a an egg an eggmobile uh, an eggmobile deal? And there, the the big problem, one of the differences between there and here is theft. Uh, they had their predator. Uh, our predator is possums and coyotes and, and and foxes. Their predator is humans. And so, uh, so he just simply uh, so the the principle of the portable chicken house, the eggmobile, it works. But in that culture, they needed a second compartment. Or a or a a partner with it um, that was an apartment and and uh, he had a he had a, a a young young married couple that provided security for the chickens out in the field. Uh, how would you like to start your marriage living out with the chickens in the field to provide security so two legged predators didn't come and take them away? <laughs> and, and so there, there there are those kinds of cultural adaptations for sure. You know there's there's nuances certain certainly, but. But the, the basic principle of mobility, embryonic starting, value adding, owning your customer, um, uh, you know, scaling by duplication, not by centralization, those kinds of principles, they are applicable in every single culture, climate, uh, place in the world. You know, one other thing that, that this reminds me of is that I end up hearing from people around the world. I've, I'm always surprised i've got some listener in this continent and another continent and i've had some people listening from africa and and anyway one of the things that that so often they have in common is that they can't afford to go into farming at the kind of scale that in the past and you know in the middle of the corn belt area i've recently had some some feedback of people back where they're all corn and soybeans or they thought they had to have a big hog operation or so forth and when they start looking forward to getting new people into the business, they just can't afford to say, well, I'm going to spend a million dollars on a on a hog building or something like that. And and so in areas that have been more traditionally the, the large scale kind of kind of farming operations that have come to dominate much of America and much of other areas, too, the, you're giving a, a hope for a way forward for people to get into the business like Ben did that had, had no chance otherwise. Yeah. You know, you know there, there's only one rule in regenerative agriculture. And that rule is that there is no hard, fast rules that we work with principles, principles that can be used, manipulated, scaled up, scaled down. And so none of these principles are, they're things that we're working to strive towards. And so that is completely scalable, no matter what level you're at. And so that's why someone in, in a third world country, um, now, now the, that lends to the most important of the principles, which is context, that everyone's context is different. My context is different than my neighbor's context, is different than Joel's context, is different than India, Africa, or China. And so the other thing is that our context is always changing. So my context in Port Moody was different than it is today, than it will be two months from now, then it will be 10 years from now, 100 years from now, when we hope our operations are still operating. And so the context is always different, is always changing. And so we need to use these principles in every decision we make. It's a decision-making metrics like in holistic management. Sure. Well, just, just to you talk about contexts, just imagine how many of our contexts got changed with COVID. 
I mean, that that black swan, that black swan swooped in and and was a disruptor, a major disruptor in all sorts of, you know, all sorts of our contexts. And so, yeah, it's a it, it's a big deal. But um, yeah, Roger, you're exactly right. What what this model, the, the model that we've just described is a way in, you know, the average American farmer is now 60 years old and. And the reason for that is not because farmers just love to work until they drop dead. Um, it, it's because when when uh, when young people can't get in, old people can't get out. And so the 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 old model of of capital intensive um, uh, infrastructure. Well, I'll give you another little uh, statistic. The average farm in America it takes four dollars worth of depreciable infrastructure. To generate one dollar in annual gross sales, so a farm a farm selling a hundred thousand dollars worth of product a year will have four hundred thousand dollars in tractors, machinery, you know, buildings and 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 depreciable stuff, not land, but the depreciable part. On our farm, we're at fifty cents worth of depreciable infrastructure per dollar in annual gross sales. That's in other words, think about that. One's four four dollars to one, the other's fifty cents to one dollar. That's a huge difference. That's that's the difference between being able to to enter the field and not enter the field. And that that's a it's, it's an astute observation, Roger, that you've made that yeah, the 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 limiting factor is this capital intensity. But if you if you if you start at embryonic scale, like Ben described. And then you you scale not by not by concentration and centralization, but by duplication. So you know we now have we now have what I think two hundred Ben we now have two hundred and ten uh, chicken shelters for our broilers. So two hundred and ten times what's two hundred and ten times seventy five in a shelter? Let's see two hundred and ten times seventy five. We'll get the calculator. That's fifteen thousand chickens. We, we have enough we have enough housing now. This is mobile outdoor portable housing for fifteen thousand chickens. That's the same as the Tyson Chicken House, but those but those little structures are modular, modular, and they were created over a you know a thirty year span of time with cash flow debt free. That's a game changer. Yeah, where I'm at, I'm going from three chicken tractors. So raising 300 bird batches up to five next year so I can raise 500 bird batches. Right. Uh, but Joel, doesn't take forever. Doesn't it take forever and ever and ever to move 230 chicken tractors? Um, well, I said 100, 120. Sorry, 120. Um, <laughs> 120. So 120 chicken tractors takes, uh, it, it takes one minute, one minute per per each. So one person without any petroleum, nothing more than our little dolly, uh, one person can move those in uh, in 120 minutes. Which so that's, is two probably, that's probably about the same time that it takes to do the dead walk in an industrial poultry barn and check all the augers and all the waters and all that. That's true. That's true. All the things, all the things that are running and whirring and, and uh, that, that can go wrong. Yes. Yeah. You're exactly right. Now there's a guy in my community and he's now at the farmer's market because during COVID he has an industrial poultry barn. His contract says he gets six batches per year. And during COVID because the processors were backed up, they dropped him back to four and his mortgage was going. Mm. So 
he tells me that he earns 35 cents per bird. And so yes. if I'm doing the same amount of chores as him and I'm earning 10, 15 or more dollars per bird on mine, boy, I'd rather be out in the fresh air. I'd rather be in the green grass. I'd be rather be watching my, my grass come busting through that cake behind the chickens just two weeks later. You know, yeah. it's so fun after moving chicken tractors to be able to walk behind and count the days. One day, very poopy. Two days, three days, seven days. You see the grass punching through. Right. Two days, I say, hey, I'd be happy to sit down here and have a picnic with this beautiful green grass. I mean, sure. I suppose that's only if you get some rain. And we have not, this morning we got about an eighth of an inch of rain. And that's the first rain we've had since June. Wow, that's unusual for you, isn't it? Yes and no. It's like we're in the rain shadow here um, of the mountains on Vancouver Island because we're on the east side of this island that's out in the Pacific Ocean. Um, right. But, you know, it's always very dry and dead here on Vancouver Island during the summers. Uh, but we live in a 70 inch rain area. So it rains wow. all winter, um, which which, which kind of lends me to some some specific questions about, you know, different contexts. Now, you visited Vancouver Island Courtney or Comox or something for a, a farm talk long ago, right? Yeah, I've been there several times. I've been around uh, Cowich and Cowich and Bay. I think yeah. is that is that the right thing? I've also been over to um, you know, to Salt Spring Island as well with uh, Mar um, Michael Michael Abelman, right. uh, who's doing some wonderful work in Victoria. But yeah, uh, Vancouver's a, a wonderful place. I've, I've been there been there a couple times, and even up uh, up north there into. Um, uh, Nanaimo. I went into Nanaimo on a float plane. That's where um, I'm at. Oh, you're in Nanaimo. Okay. Yes, All sir. right. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, I flew that little, uh, that little, uh, otter. What do they call it? A, uh, beaver, beaver tail otter, uh, single engine craft in there on a pontoon. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and we almost ran over a couple speedboats that strayed into the, um, you know, that straight into the thing and he had to abort one of the takeoffs. I said, does that happen very often? He said, all the time. Oh boy. <laughs> well, if, if you knew where to look, you would have been able to see uh, the farms that I work on when you were flying. Um, but, you know, that kind of asks, leads me to some questions about, you know, grazing management and, and, and the ruminant animal is the best harvester of solar energy. And so, you know, my goal is to reverse climate change and feed my community through True. through natural systems that have that have ha been happening for all of eternity. And so with the ruminant animal, our goal is to prune the grass and then let it recover. So what can you kind of describe the contextual differences between somewhere where I'm at, where we have 70 inches in the winter, it's wet, wet, wet never have a full full snowy winter maybe we get a week of snow and it melts the next week mm -hmm. versus somewhere like where you're at which is three which is four seasons versus an arid environment because often i feel there's there's conversation about four season areas where you're at um these desert desertifying areas but in a place like where i'm at i feel like i sometimes get left out <laughs> well you're, you're all you're almost in a um uh a mediterranean it's a it's a northern mediterranean climate um with, with kind of your wet season and dry season so so in the winter time one of your biggest issues is pugging with with cattle isn't it is is pugging because the soil gets damp it gets soft 
you go in there with the cows. Next thing you know, you, you know they're, they're sinking down two or three inches. And they're creating and all these all little this, potholes and they're yeah, turning everything all, to mud. Right. You got all this damage. So we have that as well. It's not as long as yours. The, the time period's not as long as yours. But it's one of the reasons why we, you know, we feed hay in the in the hay shed. Uh, again, it doesn't. It's it, um, we call it the barn, but it doesn't have any sides, so it's really just a a hay shed, and that's as much to protect us from you know lose from from leaching out the nutrients in the winter, as it is to to protect the fields from pugging damage during that you know that thaw that that winter um, soft soft period, but. Um, I think in general, your um, the advantage the advantage that you have over us is that you do have a tremendous amount of surface runoff in the winter time. You know, you you just have rains, right? And and so uh, if you think about it, so so one of the things that we've done, I haven't I haven't written much about it, but because uh, it's been a, such a long time coming, but. We now have four uh, New Zealand K-line irrigation um, uh, modules modules set up, essentially where we've built we've built ponds next to the fields. So instead of having a big centralized system, uh, we've got you know multiple ponds and multiple little little pumps uh, that we can then uh, pump water so we can collect surface runoff in the wintertime, and we can irrigate in the summertime when it gets when it gets dry. And, uh, you know, you never get as much sunshine in the, you know, in, in a dry time, you never get that much more sun. The grass wants to grow, but the mo- the, 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 the moisture in the ground, uh, if, if it's dry, it doesn't grow. And so by capturing surface runoff in the wintertime, uh, we can dispense that in the summer. And, um, and, and by definition, this is, this is hydrating the landscape. Uh, we believe very strongly. We don't want to take irrigate. We don't want to take water from from rivers. We don't want to take it from aquifers because that's the commons. Every everybody owns that. Uh, if everybody sticks a straw in an aquifer and starts sucking on it, pretty soon you don't have an aquifer. But when you're when you're uh, taking surface runoff, where the commons is already full, the cup is full because there's excess moisture and it's creating a flood problem downstream when you take that and you can collect that uh in a in, in a pond to, to to dispense in the dry time you're not actually stealing anybody's water you're not hoarding water you are you are actually uh, creating a saving a hydrating the landscape with a savings account of water that can be dispensed strategically when the biomass isn't growing then then when you make biomass grow longer than it than it would uh, uh, naturally, you're actually you're actually sequestering way more carbon and growing way more biomass than nature would when left to itself. I, I think that this idea that that nature left to itself is is the is the ideal situation puts a lot of faith in um, faith in whatever in happenstance and uh, and to assume that that every puddle and every ridge and every and and every whatever natural uh uh thing is is the best um you know doesn't put any credence in our ability to to caress to massage that landscape into greater productivity 
So we're not talking about about we're not talking about plowing. We're not talking about uh, glyphosate. We're not talking about chemical fertilizer. What we are talking about is is duplicating what the beavers did with strategic ponding uh, to create essentially a, a, a hydraulic uh, hydraulic terrace inventories so that we can dispense those in the in the dry time and absolutely like it's you know it's just getting drier and drier they say that our climate is going to be that of san, san diego in another however many years but and and the thing is that these natural cycles that you describe they're broken because we no longer have the animals that did those things, whether it was the large herds of elk and deer that would have been on this island or the bison in the prairies um, and the and the beavers to do this work of the ponds. And so, you know, it really makes sense that we need to hold that water on our our water that falls on our land. And then instead of taking water from the commons out of the river, in fact, during the hot summers, we're giving that water back. We're we're har yes. we're harvesting our water and we're giving it back to the environment. So opposite of the the conventional paradigm, which is summertime, take water and put it on my things. Right. That, that's exactly right. And, and so the, the operative phrase here is the Latin phrase in situ. So what we want is in situ. We we want in the situation in that in that spot. We uh, the 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 car the carbon grown on the spot. Uh, decomposes on the spot. The the rain that falls on the spot um, hydrates the spot, uh, and, and you know it's it's just another way of thinking of localization, localized food systems, and region regionalizing our thinking. Um, you know it's it, it, it's even philosophically consistent with the Chinese phrase. You know if everybody would sweep in front of their door, the whole world would be clean. You know, I wanted to jump in because uh, I'd like to keep talking on this because I think we could go another couple hours uh, and talk about, I think, the situation and how the more local production and all these things you both are able to talk about. And it's really fascinating. But I want to skip ahead a little bit because when you start doing what you're doing, you're applying these principles uh, you got to market the product and, and Joel, you found, and I know the bin you found too, you have to address processing. You have to have, if you're going to be growing livestock in these, in these systems, you need to be able to convert them. So you've got a product and then you've got to, to, to market. And, uh, Joel, you've been a pioneer in that area as well and bin too. So I'd like you to both to talk a little bit about that, about, now, now you figured out this is a system that can work and you can produce the product, but you got to find a way to process it. You got to find a way to market it. And, and Joe, remind people where you are with that part of the journey. <laughs> well, if you've read my book, everything I want to do is illegal. Uh, War stories from the local food front. It, uh, it articulates the numerous uh, battles and skirmishes and, and things that we've, we've had over the years. And, and frankly, there are things that we would like to do that we that we don't do right now i mean you can't you can't fight every battle you can't you know you can't assault every hill that's there and so uh we try to be legal as much as we can but i, I will just say this that that uh, you know the 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 butcher baker and candlestick maker who used to live in the village work in the village and serve the village they have been largely excluded by the industrial the industrial food complex which has used um, consumer fear and government uh, government uh, overreach 
to to intervene in in voluntary consensual adult uh, food provenance choice. And I'm I'm using a lot of a lot of uh, uh, powerful words here, but um, you know we we it, it, you can you can drink all the Coca Cola you want. But, you know, um, but you can't have a glass of raw milk. I mean, that's where we've come to. And um, and, and so the, as the government has defined what is safe and what is not safe, it has made it more and more difficult for people like Ben and I to actually handle our animals and to create uh, processing. You know, no, nobody wants a live turkey on their plate for Thanksgiving. Nobody wants a, you know, a live calf at their doorstep. They want it in T-bone steaks. They want it in ground beef. They want it, you know, processed. And so, and so getting that step of the, of the value chain done on a local level uh, at a, at an affordable price that is, is uh, what, you know, community of, of a community scale, a human scale, that is um, that is proper for authenticity and integrity is increasing is increasingly difficult, and so that's one reason why. And Ben, I'll, I'll toss it over to you because you know Canada is a little bit different than the U.S., but that is why here in the U.S., um, uh, several of us have started the Rogue Food Conference (RFC) Rogue Food Conference, and it's essentially showcasing the the rogues out here who have figured out a, a circumvention way rather than compliance. The moniker is circumvention rather than compliance. When, when, when intervention and tyranny become so difficult that it's easier to circumvent than comply, um, you know, that's where we are. And so we have personal membership associations. Um, we have, we have uh, um, Adjuster, the old English uh, Adjuster arrangements where you pay a, a caretaking fee and then you give the product away. There are all sorts of schemes that are now being done to come outside the legal definition of in commerce. In commerce is where the, you know, where the bureaucracy and the regulators get you. And so there's a lot of schemes now to, 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 to circumvent and come outside in commerce. And um, it, it's it's a it's a growing movement. It's it's it, it's more and more um, uh, necessary here, and we're it's all part of a of a parallel universe. We're trying to build a parallel universe. We we fought city hall and fought city hall, fought city hall, and finally, uh, so, sometimes it gets to the point where you say, <laughs> forget city hall, let's build a parallel universe. And, um, and and even though, you know, I go to a USDA process, uh, processor for our beef and pork, and like I say, we, you know, we're high profile, we're very visible. Uh, so, you know, we, we don't, we're, we're not pushing on all these fronts, but a lot of smaller operators that are not as well healed as we are, haven't been in the business as long as we have, uh, they're finding a lot of um, uh, uh, opportunity within some of this circumventive um, context. Absolutely, Joel. And I've got some examples of this, uh, you know, the, the practical examples in my life that that lend to exactly what you just spoke to. So I have now a new uh, principle, I suppose, where I am not going to fill out any paperwork that I don't absolutely have to. And so, you know, I've even go so far as letting my business license lapse with the city because, I mean, they stopped hassling me to get me to 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 fill out the papers. And um, 
and so and then you know speaking to you know the workarounds looking for those workarounds um here's an example so i have i'm not in a position to buy cattle i don't have enough money in the bank to buy a breeding herd and you know i would love to do custom grazing things like that greg judy talks about where a farmer like myself can get the land and then find someone who owns the cows and then take a salary a day uh, a service rate mm-hmm. to take care of those cows well there's no big beef producers here on vancouver island so if i lived in the interior in alberta i could just go to a big beef producer and they'd send me some animals sure so instead, I am going kind of the way uh, raw dairies are going. I have created a herd share. So a customer of mine who lives da- in an apartment downtown Vancouver can purchase a mama cow from me. And then they then all of the calves that come out of that mama cow, they're paying me a service rate. So I have a regular stipend coming from those mama cows. Um, the, the, baby, the baby calves that come from those mamas uh, they either can, after weaning, sell them back to me for my meat program. So first of all, that allows me to control my breeding stock. Um, or they can start paying the service rate to raise that out to be another heifer, like another mama calf for them, um, or to be a, a beef animal that goes into their freezer. Now, the workaround is that some of my customers value having on-farm slaughter enough, which is not eligible here in, in uh, BC, that now because they are the animal owner, we can do on-farm slaughter. And so this is a workaround to allow on-farm slaughter to happen because my customer owns the cow and pay me a service rate just to take care of it. So that's one workaround. Now, another is um, I've been trying for since 2020 to build a poultry processing plant. Um, Joel, did you want to speak to that last piece for a minute before I tell you about my processing? Uh, well, uh, the only uh, the yeah the the beef um, that's a that's a wonderful workaround. So your customer um, your customer buys the cow, and they either have the option to continue to pay you a, an adjuster fee, a, a caretaker's fee, to raise it for them, or or they can sell it uh, back to you. Either way, I get that. So do you do you have uh, like meat saw and grinder and and processing equipment? To, how do you? How do you get paid to actually do the do the processing? Uh, that that's a kind of a sticky a, a sticky issue here. Um, if you're if you're actually not getting paid for processing, how do you get paid for processing? Well, for, first of all, we're working on um, at least getting the opportunity to have on farm kill instead. And so then I work with local butchers that I that do slaughter or that do cut and wrap um, and butchering for game animals, uninspected meat. Um, now in the future, I so long-term goal is to build a red meat plant. Short-term goal is to build a poultry plant. And so then I will be involved in that system. We can take those animals. Hopefully we'll be raising the beef on that same property. Yeah, um, so I, yeah, I think, I think for our, for all the listeners listening to us, it's important to just to point out that it, it, from the inspection, uh, from the government standpoint, poultry is not considered meat. Uh, uh, meat and poultry are two totally different things. And also from a practical standpoint, as a farmer, there's a big difference between handling a, a great big 500 pound carcass of beef uh, versus a, 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 a six pound carcass of chicken. I mean, just, just from the equipment, you know, front end loaders, hydraulics, you know, things that you have to have to, to be able to, uh, to handle it. 
So, you know, I, I want people to just conceive of the difference between five or 600 pounds, uh, 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 you know, single thing, or even, you know, I mean, before the guts are out, it, you know, it'd be 1,100 pounds, uh, great big, versus, you know, six, seven, eight pounds. You know, you can handle that. Your children can handle that. It's very, very simple to handle that on a, you know, on a table. Uh, whereas a, you know, 1,100, 1,200-pound 1200 cow uh, is not going to go on a table very easily. You need some specialized uh, kind of equipment to make that work. So go ahead with the chickens then. So that lends to my my mission in in abattoirs. So um, we had five red meat plants and five poultry plants, small, small, small family operations here on Vancouver Island as of 2018. And on both sides, one operator has retired and the other has passed away. So now we're down to three poultry plants and three red meat plants. Um, and those options are not very good, to be honest. Um, now, luckily, one of the red meat plants has been taken over by a young couple. Um, and so they're carrying on the tradition, but they're just so overwhelmed. So in order for me to grow my farm, I have to build slaughter capacity here on Vancouver Island. So my goal is to first start with a poultry plant and then build a red meat plant. So since 2020, I've been working to build, you know, with the same four principles, detach the land ownership from the farming, find a piece of land to release that's in the correct zoning, hopefully, or, or have to rezone. Second of all, mobile infrastructure, something that's nimble, even if it's in a shipping container, it could be moved or if right. the context of the community changes, it could be sold. Third modular, we're building these as small as fiscally feasible. And then if we need another one, we're going to build another one up island or down island. And then uh, finally, uh, direct marketing. Well, we need to offer a service because right now with poultry, I cannot drop off my birds and get them back as I need them for the farmer's market. So what I will offer is a customer can drop off their birds, have them slaughtered and have, say, I'm bringing a hundred birds. I want half of them to be cut and wrapped like this. I want the weight to be on like this. I want my label to be like this. And I want the other birds, whole birds like this, packaged like this. Right now, I've been driving two hours south to, to Victoria over a, over a mountain pass to get to the only facility that offers cut and wrap well their label maker broke and because they're so overwhelmed with uh, demand they don't need to fix that they just tell me oh well it, you know for us it's fine just to write the date and the abattoir number on the side of the box that's all we need to do well, i can't sell a boneless skinless breast without the label no. on it no you can't uh, -uh. if i no. you know and i have if i if the farmer if the food police showed up at the farmer's market and saw that they would say, pack up, go home. You're not allowed to come back until you've proven that you're doing it correctly. So yeah. when I build an abattoir, the direct consumer piece is that we need to offer the service for someone who doesn't have the equipment, doesn't have the skills, doesn't have the knowledge to, because the, the printer that I need and scale, it's a, 12, a $1,200 piece of equipment. I can't justify that where I'm at right now, but if it's a, for the community service, I can. So uh, Joel, do you want to touch on that or should I continue with my story? Well, so is that, is that, is that going to be, is that going to be a licensed facility? Correct. It, it would be, be a licensed, licensed facility. facility. Yeah. So that but, would, a shipping container would be, allow me to be full a inspected, um, no limit to production. Um, and there would be an inspector on site every day of slaughter. Now I have actually decided to scale down. I have found economies of scale by going smaller. So there are on, new on-farm 
slaughter licenses where there's they're called the Farmgate license and Farmgate Plus. Farmgate is 10,000 pounds. Farmgate Plus is 25,000 pounds. And so, and then you either get licensed as a poultry facility or as a red meat facility with the same 25,000 pound weight limit. So what if, so, so I had made an offer. I, um, I pulled a loan to be able to make an offer on a red meat abattoir that didn't, that fell through. And so I, I turned around and from Mike Badger, um, the bird nerd is his website where he sells poultry equipment. So I bought my poultry equipment. I have my kill cones, plucker and scalded, the poultry specific equipment I need. I've had it in the back of a 10 foot enclosed trailer. And I've been in doing uninspected for the farmer's personal consumption, processing 30 to hundred birds a day by myself, or maybe with one helper. And so I've been doing those maybe once a month just to pay some bills here and there for the last, last summer and this summer. Wow. Now, uh-huh. what if I, what if I legitimize that? So I use the new farm gate license, 25,000 pounds. Now, 25,000 pounds is not enough to be a full-time income for a couple people to work in this plant. So what if I license five facilities? If, is that is that 25,000 pounds a year or per day? Correct. Per, per year. year. Oh, that's not that much. That's not that much. So what if I license five properties? And so I spend two months at each of those properties, taking two months in the off season off. Then I can have two employees. So in the shipping container model, that would be a $500,000 investment and six employees doing 300 birds a day. What if I scale that back to a 24 foot enclosed trailer? I spend two months on each farm. We do with two employees, 100, 150 birds a day. So we're doing one third the production with a $50,000 investment instead of a $500,000 investment. So one tenth the investment, we're doing one third production. And then we spend two months at each of these farms. Now, another benefit is that we can hide under the radar because instead of doing the fixed facility, full abattoir licensed and having to deal with six Mm. or seven government bodies, BC Meat Inspection Agency, Vancouver Island Health Authority, Ministry of Water, Ministry Mm. of Transportation, Ministry of Environment. Uh, Well, if I'm mobile, all I have to deal with is the BC Meat Inspection Agency. And I work side by side with these people. Yesterday, I was processing turkeys and the inspectors are our friends, to be honest, here on Vancouver Island. It's such a small community. They all want me to be in business. It's the food police at the health authority that are sticklers for the regulation and authoritarian. Yes. Yes. The, the, The ag in general, the ag people understand that we desperately need capacity and to open up this opportunity for for farmers, it's the um, it, it's the health it's it's the health officials that are that are paranoid of um, of all these other things. Well, boy, you're you know you're you're definitely thinking correctly. It's all about uh, multiple use. Um, see how small it can be, not how big it can be. Uh, the, those are the critical questions, you know, every time, every time in, in our, you know, in our whatever Western world, our Western mindset, whenever somebody has an idea, it seems like the second question is always, wow, that's a good idea. How big can it be around here at our farm? We always say, wow, that's cool. How small can it be? Uh, because it's in the smallness that you actually get, um, that you actually get entry level capitalization and entry level uh, standard operating procedures, so that you can actually get in and do it. You, 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 you can't, you can't jump into these things. You know, you're like me. You know, we don't have a, we don't have a, a Cayman Islands bank account. You know, we got to somehow um, 
uh, self-finance and bootstrap it uh, so that we can get in. And man, I love the way you're thinking. And and uh, boy, if you can punch through this, uh, you know, you're probably aware of uh, the, the, the plant in the box here in the U.S., what uh, Dave Schaefer has done. He's got whatever, you know, four or five of them out now. And um, and so the, just for our listeners to understand, um, Ben just said, you know, that his his kind of under the radar amount is twenty five thousand pounds per year in the U.S., uh, we have uh, that that kind of same idea for twenty thousand uh, a head per year, twenty thousand head per year. Which you know, if they're say five pounds, that's a hundred thousand pounds. So in the U.S., we have a similar program, but it's four times the amount in Canada, and 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 that four times capacity under this kind of uh, uh, inspection exemption is. Um, I mean, that's enough to actually make a living as a small farmer uh, versus what Ben's working under is really not enough by itself on its own to make a to make a living as a small farmer. And that's and, why and with mobile infrastructure, with mobile, you license you can five farms. That. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you can duplicate the one that. trailer. Exactly. Oh, that's that's brilliant. Now, now the other piece, Joel, is once two. So my goal is, you know, these calves that are going to be born this spring in 2025, they'll need to be processed. And so my goal is to have a red meat plant open by 2025 with a full abattoirs license. Mm -hmm. This trailer then can pull in next to it. It can park there because I have the bathroom and the office for the inspector and the wastewater treatment center and all of this. Now the poultry plant can level up to a fully licensed facility. And now we have no limits. Boy, I tell you what, I'm sure glad you guys are getting your heads together. And I think there's people listening to this. Some are going to go this way. Some of them are just people that want to buy your product, though, too. So now that you're introduced, hopefully, Ben and Joel, you guys can talk some talk some more. But I'm, we're, we're going to have to have another podcast conversation <laughs> uh, because there's just so much ground to cover. One quick thing, though, I want to go back to that end consumer, because once you solve these problems, somebody is buying your eggs or your milk and your meat and, and so forth. I assume they're coming back because they think it's delicious. Some of them are aware that you're doing the right thing, the way that you're farming and they want to support that. But you also hear that they, they have to come to grips with the fact that sometimes it needs to cost a little bit more than if you're buying the more industrial produced product at, at the stores. I mean, with what you're doing, if it can give a good quality product and it tastes good and you know that it's regeneratively produced and so forth, but is there progress being made in the efficiencies and and the cost for people that are, you know, trying to purchase on budgets? It's getting tighter and tighter to, to afford food. Are, are we making progress in that regard? You know, what's great is that, you know, with everything going on in the world, prices keep going up and up and up at the grocery store. And I am so new in my operation that I keep finding more and more and more efficiencies. So my price is super stable. And, you know, uh, Hobbs Margaret from uh, Salt and Fire Beef, you know, he's the TikTok rancher. He calls this claps farming uh, because it's a lot easier to say than regenerative agriculture. So <laughs> claps farming, because we're claps proof. You know, if, if, if industries in that break down, this is very resilient farming. So we have very stable price and the industry food just keeps getting closer and closer and closer to my price point 
and my food remains so much better an eating experience and people are are getting more excited about eating eating locally eating eat, knowing where their food comes from meeting their farmer what do you think joel yeah yeah roger you've you've uh yeah you've hit a really hot button for all of us in this space and that is that you're no doubt aware of how the war in ukraine uh with russia has uh has raised uh, fertilizer prices. Um, you know, all the farmers are, are crying in their, you know, their uh, beer about the, the high prices of fertilizer, uh, wheat and all that stuff. And, and, and on our farm, we don't buy any of it. You know, uh, it, it doesn't matter. And so suddenly all this alleged efficiency in the industrial, in the industrial ag complex, this, this efficiency that we've heard all the time is suddenly giving way to a new word. It's called resilience. Just like, just like in, in the business world, it's always been for the last, you know, 40 years, it's always been just in time inventory, just in time. And now with the breakdown in all sorts of socio energy uh, supply chains, the, the new operative term is just in case inventory instead of just in time, just in case. And all these things, what's happening is all these things are, are indicating the fragility. People like Ben and I have been sounding the alarm of the fragility in a global uh, uh, industrial scale uh, um, uh, antibiotic uh, petroleum dependent food system. We've been sounding the alarm for a long time and saying, actually, all this efficiency, it actually has a fragile side to it. Well, COVID, suddenly, it didn't make it fragile. It exposed the fragility. And so the first time in my life, and I've been at this for, you know, half a century, for the first time in my life, our prices, our prices for authentic, you know, high quality have stayed the same while the industry, the store food, has has doubled and tripled. Tyson Foods went up 32% in their beef cost. I had a lady in the store recently. She said, good grief, your sirloin steak is cheaper than Costco. And, and, and so suddenly, suddenly, people like us that are in the resiliency space, less fragile, we're seeing the price equilibrium come into play in a new context as COVID has exposed and demonstrated the fragility of the system. I, I have never been more... Uh, optimistic and excited about uh, our resilient alternative than I am today. Boy, am I happy to hear you say that because Joel, before we started this conversation, I was thinking back somewhere I heard you speak uh, years ago before long, long before COVID came up and you talked about fragility and I thought it made so much sense because you could say, you know, there are people that are doing a pretty good job that are really large scale and, mm -hmm. but everything has to be just about perfect. Cause if it goes off the rails, yes. it really goes off the rails. Yes. And, and that, that was the first time I ever heard fragility applied to the food system and the challenges of those large, large scale enterprises and looking at globalization and so forth. Mm -hmm. And uh, it stuck with me, just like those four <laughs> points stuck <laughs> with, with Ben, uh, that he started the meeting. And, and, you know, I think that's one of your talents too. You've been anticipating these things and you've had people paying attention to what you're saying and you've said it in a way that, you know, sticks with you. And it's nice to kind of see it through and seeing the progress being made. 
And right. we're making some more today. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it sure is. You know, uh, during COVID, think about think about uh, just just I'll, I'll, I'll just uh, uh, kind of close that picture with you uh, with this, Roger. Just imagine that if in 2020, instead of the U.S. having let's just say um, 300 5,000 employee centralized uh, food processing plants, that's canneries, slaughterhouses, you know, whatever. Um, if instead the country had, let's just say, half a million uh, 20 to 30 employee community processing facilities uh, handling our food, would we have had a as big a hiccup as we had? I would suggest that we would not have had nearly the hiccup uh, because when just for that matter, just from the spread of, of the disease, you know, when, when you cram 5,000 people in a dark, uh, um, uh, wet, cold space, you're going to, that, that's a vector for transfer. Uh, I don't want to get into a big debate about viruses and all that stuff, but, but you have to agree that's a much bigger vector for spread than if you're, you know, 20 people from a community coming in, you know, uh, uh, much less, much less stressed. And on a on a more human scale, you know, I don't wake up every money. Uh, you know, in in our farm business right now, we have about you know uh, twenty two people that that make a living now from from our farm. So Ben, that's that that that's where you're headed. Okay, so just hang in there. You're young. You got a lot of savvy. You're gonna you're gonna make it there. But you know, I don't wake up every morning wondering, oh no, uh, did did I did I uh, close off. Uh, quadrant X over there because Matt got COVID. Uh, did I close it off in time, or are they going to call the you know the government occupational safety and health and take me to court for not you know? I, I don't wake up that way, and, and that's why a speedboat in in, in disturbing times, uh, a, a speedboat like ours is much more nimble and quick than the aircraft carrier of the quote unquote efficient gargantuan system, we can navigate those shoals. You know, there's a business book out that says, it, it, it's not the big that eats the small, it's the fast that eats the slow. And right now, people like Ben and I, we're fast, we're nimble, we can adjust, we can change to the context. Whereas these big aircraft carriers, they're stuck with their supply chains, they're stuck with their infrastructure, stuck on their land base, they can't make those changes as fast. So when things are, when the wheels start falling off, you want that kind of adaptability. It's all about adaptability and being able to diversify your decision-making so, so that you're not stuck in the, well, we've always done it this way. No, we can, uh, Ben said it at the top of the hour, you know, uh, the context changes uh, uh, monthly. And so if there's one thing we need to be able to make our, our decisions appropriately and adaptively, it is to be small enough and nimble enough to be able to make those adjustments in real time. And that, that's why it's so exciting to be at this at this scale at this time in history. You know, uh, this is a good time to jump on one of your metaphors and land that plane, because I, I think as you were painting that picture, we've we've uh, we've gotten this spot for the conversation so far we've hit so many things that i'm going to think on and i'm looking forward to listening to this podcast again myself and and hearing this conversation but it's time to wrap up and and, and ben i'll let you have a have a word and then i want joel to kind of maybe wrap it up with a final word 
but I, I think that a combination of Ben, if you have a final comment, but also if people want to keep track of what you're doing, if you've got any place you want to point them to a website or anything like that, feel free to mention that too. So, so Ben, some final words of this conversation. So we wrap up this podcast before we do it again someday. Uh, Temple Grandin has a great way of describing where we're headed. And that is comparing this to the craft beer industry. So right now, certified organic is two or 4% of the international food um, or the North American food industry, anyhow. And now when we look at beer, this craft brewing craft beer market has taken over 30% of the beer industry. And so we just need craft meat and vegetables to take over 30% of the food industry. And I can only imagine that regenerative agriculture is a fraction of the couple percent that organic serves. So we just need to be progressively building these businesses and being inspiring based on how this is a viable career option. Uh, you know, at the top of the hour, uh, Joel, you said, I'm one in a thousand. Well, my goal is to get a thousand school-aged children to my farm. And if, you know, if, if 10% of those kids think about this experience every time they shop for the rest of their life, that's a win. If 5% or 3% of those kids have an experience of working on a farm later in their life, that's a win. And mm -hmm. if 1% or a fraction of a percent of those kids become good farmers, that is my goal. My goal is not to 10x my farm, not to 10x my company like most entrepreneurs. My goal is to 10x the number of farmers in my community to be able to serve everyone here. Mm. And Ben, wow. how can people keep track of, of how you're doing on that journey? Um, you can catch me on Instagram or Facebook at Glass and Farms, my last name, G-L-A-S-S-E-N. Um, and check out glassandfarms.com. And then I'm uh, locally, I do a radio show uh, called The Tuning Fork on food and farming here on mid Vancouver Island. Uh, there's some recordings of that. Um, I love I love taking part in podcasts like this when I can. Um, and and sometimes you'll catch me on Clubhouse talking to my friends all over the world. Yeah, yeah, I catch you there too. Joel. Wow. An, a, another great day, Joel. I tell you, it's so fun talking yeah. with you and having been here too, but uh, let you wrap it up a little bit and decide how many different directions you can point people, either where you're going or books you can read or, you know, that yeah, sort well, of thing. Yeah. As, as you know, I mean, I've, I've written 15 books. I, I'm hoping to get out another one yet this winter. Um, and, and uh, you know, I have a whole uh, video curriculum now, Farm Like a Lunatic, it's a video curriculum for people that want to, to get into farmers. I'm with Ben. Uh, yeah, we don't need we don't need huge farmers. We need just lots of farmers. Uh, that's where we need to go with this. Uh, probably collaborating and clustering, sharing equipment, sharing markets, sharing distribution trucks, processing facilities, those kinds of things. But but uh, absolutely, uh, uh, you know, a, a network of farmers. Uh, of course, our website is polyfacefarms.com. Uh, P-O-L-Y-F-A-C-E, the farm of many faces, Polyface uh, Farms. And I, I would just leave with this parting word, you know, uh, if, if we all sat down right now and made a list of all the things we're angry about and frustrated about and the things we see that are wrong in the world, it could be a pretty significant list. 
and 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 it can and it can bleed off a lot of uh, emotional and and spiritual and, and 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 mental energy from us. So the trick is the trick though is to take that list, look at it, and funnel all that energy into creative, innovative solutions, so that we become hope and help when the world becomes hopeless and helpless. That's where we need to head. Well, I tell you what, I want to thank you both for helping me feel like it's sure not hopeless. And and when people ask me, why do you like to do podcasts? Well, I'm honored to be able to host people like Joel and Ben and have people listening that care about these conversations. And I want to thank you both for being on Farm to Table Talk. For This is one of our, going to be one of my favorite conversations. So come back. We're going to do it again sometime. Thank you. It's a, it's a delight. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson.